Shalom. Welcome to Amle Vadad Yishkon number 22. This will be the final podcast in this series. And what I would like to do today is to first of all finish uh, looking at the Rambam that we looked at last time. And then to use that Rambam as a base to sort of extrapolate and summarize and bring to conclusion really everything we've spoken about in the last 11 hours or so of, uh, of discussions over the course of the series. So let's go back. We were looking at the Rambam in Perak Yud Aleph, chapter 11 of Hilchot Melachim, almost at the very end of the Rambam's Mishneh Torah. And you may recall that I mentioned at the time that uh, there's a problem with the standard printed texts here in the sense that a, a certain passage was was removed from the standard printed editions of the Rambam due to pressures from Christian censors when the Rambam was printed in Europe several hundred years ago. I'm going to be using an uncensored version. Uh, and there are several uh, new printings of the Rambam that have the uncensored version based on manuscripts. I'm reading from the Shabtai Frankel edition of the Rambam. Uh, let's go back to Perikid Aleph Halacha Gimel. We read this last time, but let's just get it into uh, flow. The Rambam tells us again a position that we saw is... Uh, at odds with the opinion of several other of the early commentaries, the Rambam tells us not to expect any miracles when the Mashiach comes. And so he says, Al ya'ale el da'atcha, do not think, shehamelech ha-Mashiach tzarich la'asot ototu moftim u'mechadesh tvarim ba'olam u'mechayei meitim v'chayotzei b'dvarim eilu, do not expect that the melech ha-Mashiach has to do all kinds of miracles or change the laws of nature or revive the dead or anything like that. Uh, things that foolish people think. The Rambam says that's not the case. And I'll prove it to you, he says. We know that Rabbi Akiva was one of the greatest sages of the time of the Mishnah. And he was one of the great supporters of Bar Kochba, who rebelled against the Romans. And he said about him explicitly that he believed that Bar Kochba was in fact the Mashiach. And he and all the other sages that agreed with him believed that Bar Kochba was the Mashiach until Bar Kochba was killed due to sins. Kevan Shneherag, once he was killed, no no Mashiach, then they knew he was not the Mashiach. And they didn't ask though any sort of uh, sign or wonder or any sort of miracle. So the fact that they didn't ask for any sort of miracle to validate the idea that he was the Mashiach, even though it turns out that Bar Kokhba was not the Mashiach, nevertheless, and we pointed out that this is really a very, very dramatic uh, jump that the Rambam makes, nevertheless, the, even though it turned out Bar Kokhba was not the Mashiach, being that that's what Rabbi Akiva being that Rabbi Akiva was willing to treat him as the Mashiach without, in fact, seeing any supernatural miracles to prove it, um, that proves that one should do the same. In the next halach, we saw that the Rambam actually says this lehalacha in halacha dal, and this is where we ended last time. Im yamod melech mi beit David. If a king will arise from the house of David, hogeba torabo sekpe mitzvot kedavid aviv, and this king is very, very scholarly and very, very pious. Kifi Torah shebichtav v'she be'alpeh follows the Torah shebichtav and the Torah shebe'alpeh. V'yikov kol Yisrael elech ba'ol lechazek bidkav yilachem milchamot Hashem, and he um, 
he uh, causes every all of Am Yisrael to follow the Torah, and he fights wars on behalf of God. Then one should assume that he is the Mashiach and act accordingly, even though it's not yet verified. If he then goes on from stage one to stage two, and he succeeds in his mission, he was fighting wars on behalf of God, and he wins those wars, then defeats all the nations around. He builds the Beit HaMikdash, and gathers all the exiled members of the Jewish people back. Then, once all that happens, all the wars are defeated, all the enemies are defeated, there's a time of peace, there's the Beit HaMikdash, and all of Am Yisrael is back in Eretz Yisrael, and they have a king from the house of David ruling over them, so then all the prophecies have been fulfilled, then you know for sure. Until that point, you can, if someone reaches the stage of Bechezkat Shehu Mashiach, if he reaches a stage where there's sufficient reason to expect, to believe that he's the Mashiach, then you have to assume that that's the case, even though you know that it may yet turn out, as it was in the time of Bar Kochba, to be wrong. And now here's where the censored portion begins. And this is where we didn't read last time. The Rambam continues, the uncensored original text of the Rambam continues as follows. But let's say he doesn't succeed or he's killed. Then it turns out in retrospect, if someone appeared like Bar Kokhba did to be the Mashiach and did all sorts of things that might lead one to think he's the Mashiach, but in the end, he ultimately did not succeed and he was killed in war or something like that, then it turns out retroactively we can now say and he was not in fact the Mashiach. What was he? He was just a, a good king um, from the house of David who did good things but ultimately didn't wasn't the actual Melech HaMashiach. And we can now say that the appearance that he might have been the Mashiach was nothing other than a test. It will then turn out that this was a test. And we have to accept the fact that the Mashiach is not yet here. And that this king, whatever he did... Whatever contribution he made to history, he made. But history has to continue, and we have to continue to await the Mashiach. And now the Rambam continues, and from this point we'll understand why the Christian censors were not happy with this passage. The Rambam now begins to address historical reality. Writing in the 12th century of the Common Era in Egypt, the Rambam writes, Af Yeshua Hanotri, even the person known as Jesus of Nazareth, Shedima Sheyihiyah Mashiach, who thought he would be the Mashiach, v'neherag b'veidin, basing himself on passages in the Talmud, the Rambam suggests that he was executed by decision of a beidin. Kvarnid nabebo Daniel. We can now say that he was the fulfillment of a pasuk that was already uh, recorded in the book of Daniel. Shenemer uvnei pritzei amcha yinasu lahamid chazon v'nichshalu. Daniel spoke about one who would try to set up a vision, Lahamid Chazon, Vinichshalu, but they failed. And the Rambam writes, Can you think of a failure that was greater than this? Than that which ultimately resulted from the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth? Shareha Nevi'im Dibru, Shemashiach, he said he was the Mashiach. And what's the Mashiach supposed to do? The Nevi'im told us, Shemashiach Goel Yisraelu Moshiach. 
the Mashiach is supposed to redeem the Jewish people and save them. And gather in all of their exiles. And strengthen observance of the Torah. And this one, this individual Jesus, who may have wanted to accomplish those things and in his own idea may have wanted to do something else. But what, as a result, ultimately happened, he ultimately, or his teachings ultimately caused and the Rambam writing shortly after the period of the First Crusade, the Rambam writes that um, he caused, or his teachings ultimately caused how many untold numbers of Jews to be slaughtered in his name. And to scatter them even more into exile. And to humiliate them. And to replace the Torah with some other philosophy. And to cause the majority of the world to worship a God other than the true God. Um, the Rambam viewing Christianity here as a form of idolatry. So, he may have had good intentions, but he was a terrible failure because look what ultimately happened. That's how the Rambam describes Jesus, the founder of Christianity. But he then continues. Aval, makshevot borei olam, ein koach ba'adam lahasigem, kilo darcheinu drachav, velo makshevoteinu makshevotav. He says, but don't worry, because... God's wiser than all of us and he sees things that we don't see. God's ways are much deeper and his thoughts and his plan is much deeper than any human being can can possibly recognize. And as we read these next words, I want you to realize that they were written by the Rambam in the Middle Ages at the height of the period of the Crusades when the Jews, both in Christian lands and in Muslim lands, were suffering deeply. And um, we'll talk in a minute about how to read these words today and how different the world looks today from the way it did then. Then he writes that God sees beyond all of us, Lo drachenu drachav, lo machshavotenu machshavotav. And he continues, V'chol hadvarim ha'ele shel Yeshua ha'notzri. All of these, all of these things that Jesus of Nazareth did, V'shel, and also all of the words of, Zeh ha'yishme eli she'amad acharav. This Arab who came later, referring of course to Muhammad, the founder of Islam, both of them, their ultimate purpose is simply to pave the way for the coming of the Mashiach. And to uh, improve the world, to serve God together. Similar to the Pesukim we saw, talks about a world where the, all of the people in the world Believe in Hashem. And he says, both Christianity and Islam have the effect of paving the way for that ultimate future reality. Kate said, how does this work? The whole world already knows about the idea of Mashiach. And the teachings of the Torah and the mitzvot. And people all over the world, far, far, far away, know these ideas. They know the basic teachings of the Torah. And they discuss them and they argue about them. <coughs> Some say, Mitzvot elu emetayu. 
וכפר בטלו בזמן הזה, ולא היו נוהגות לדורות. Some say, well, those mitzvot used to be true, but now they're not, they're not relevant any longer. And others say, that the mitzvot are true, but they shouldn't be taken literally. So people all over the world think that they don't actually have to follow all of the detailed teachings of the Torah, but they know about them. And some say, some say the Mashiach already came. But look, look what's been accomplished, says the Rambam, because when the true Mashiach finally comes, when he succeeds and he, and he becomes exalted and people start to know about him, then we're not going to have to start teaching them everything from scratch. They basically know everything already. It's just that right now they have some mistaken conception that for one reason or another, uh, the Torah is not, doesn't apply, but they basically know what the Torah says, and then all that will need to be done is they'll have to recognize that, that particular mistake, and everything will fall into place. So the Rabbim says here something truly remarkable. He looks at the two great religions that already at his time, and even more so today, between the two of them, uh, control the majority of the world, Christianity and Islam, both of which historically are religions that although they developed in different ways, both were based on the teachings of the Torah. Christianity, of course, developed in the first century of the Common Era, in the second century, and, and later on. Originally, in the very beginning, in the first century, um, as a movement of Jews that split off and then eventually began to teach non-Jews and ultimately turned into a different religion. Islam, to begin with, was a religion uh, by and for non-Jews, but it was based very, very heavily and explicitly on the teachings of the Torah. And these two religions, although on the one hand they have caused so much difficulty for Am Yisrael and so many Jews have been killed and, and, and have suffered as a result of the teachings of these two religions, on the one hand says the Rambam, but on the other hand he says that ultimately these things uh, are part of the divine plan. These two religions are part of the divine plan for bringing the whole world to uh, its ultimate conclusion. And with that, what I think is an extremely powerful idea of the Rambam, here's what I'd like to do in the next few minutes. I want to go back right now and just summarize in just a few minutes everything we've spoken about since the very beginning. And then I would like to conclude by returning to this Rambam and uh, perhaps look at the Rambam not so much the way it looked in in the 12th century when it was written, but read those words from today's perspective and see what what perhaps I think this all means. So very quickly, let's go back to the very beginning. We started this series by pointing out that the history of the Jewish people is full of wonders. It doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that we've survived uh, for all of these centuries. It doesn't make sense that the entire world uh, has seemed to be opposed to us, or at the very least that we've been subjected to such hatred and such persecution far more than any other people. Those two things together, that we've survived and thrived in spite of all the attempts to destroy us, are even more amazing. The idea that we've come back to our land and reestablished ourselves as a nation after thousands of years of galut seems completely incomprehensible. And the fact that it was all predicted in advance in the Torah uh, really seems to blow 
at least I feel it blows me away and, and I think anybody that really looks at it objectively has to be wondered, has to wonder at it. And we even quoted some people over the course of history, uh, who've, who've noticed this, some non-Jews who've noticed this. And we even pointed out that not only is the history and the contemporary reality of Am Yisrael very, very difficult to understand, but even the essence of what Am Yisrael is doesn't seem to make much sense. It's an entity that even today can't really be defined. Am Yisrael is not a nation. It's not a nationality. It's not an ethnic group. It's certainly not a racial group. It's not a religion either. It has elements of all those things, but it doesn't fit any of them. And yet everybody seems to understand, Jew and non-Jew alike, that there is such a thing as Am Yisrael. And we even touched on the contemporary uh, significance of this in the state of Israel and how the state of Israel has to grapple with this. The Jewish people in general has to grapple with me who exactly Yehudi, who is a Jew and uh, who is eligible for Israeli citizenship, etc., etc. And we said this whole thing is one big, one big uh, question mark. And we then decided to open up the Torah and to see if the Torah itself can give us any inkling into what this is all about. And in fact, the Torah does. The Torah tells us, if you start from the very beginning, the Torah tells sort of a schematic view of the origin of humanity in human history. And the way the Torah tells the story in this schematic way, the world was created for a purpose. That purpose, even though it's not completely explained to us, we are told that there's a goal. And the goal is that Mankind was created with free will, and man has to freely choose to serve God. And if he doesn't, then the world at one point was threatened with destruction. We talked about how the book of Bereshit in its early chapters kind of lays out for us a developmental process by which uh, the history of the world developed in such a way that it led to the birth of Am Yisrael. We're told that first there was Adam and his wife, and they were given a uh, an incredible environment to live in called Gan Eden, and they really had what the Torah describes as one single command, not to eat from the eights hada'at, and of course they did not, uh, they did not, um, observe that command properly, and therefore they brought death upon themselves, and they brought exile upon humanity, uh, and we talked about a plan B outside of Gan Eden, we talked about the near destruction of the world in the time of Noah, and yet, uh, the, the chance that was given for the children of Noah to rebuild the world and to try again. We talked about how God made a promise to Noah um, that he would never destroy the world. Ultimately, that means that the children of Noah ultimately must succeed in the mission and must bring the world to its perfected state where all of humanity serves God together. We then talked about the the passage of the Dor HaPlaga, the story of Migdal Bavel, where the Torah, again, in schematic fashion, describes how uh, mankind was split up into multiple different nations, each with its own language and culture, and ultimately with its own history. And that led to the requirement that there be one nation chosen to lead all of the others. And uh, this led to the choice of Avraham Avinu, Lech Lecha Me'artzecha, Ve'e'escha Legoi Gadol, the promise that Avraham will be made into a great nation, and the ultimate mission, V'nivrechu Becha Komesh Pechot Adama, the promise that ultimately uh, Avraham's descendants need to bring the blessings of God to the entire world. We've talked about how Avraham was promised Eretz Yisrael as the environment in which this is going to take place. We saw how the stories of the rest of the Avot, Yitzchak and Yaakov, and then the, ultimately the children of Yaakov, flesh out the background to that, ultimately leading to 
the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Brit Ben Abitarim, when the descendants of Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim, to Egypt for several hundred years, and were ultimately brought out of Egypt with great miracles, brought to Har Sinai, and there they received the Torah and the command, Vatem Tiyuli Mamlechet Kohanim Vigoi Kadosh, the command to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which we said is nothing other than the fulfillment of the mission or the concretization of the mission given to Abraham. And then we looked at the mitzvot of the Torah, and we saw how the Torah, far from being simply a religion, that the Torah, the mitzvot of the Torah, give us the blueprint for a society, the constitution for a nation, and address really all aspects, not only of personal life, but of national life, and tell us how to run a government, and how to run an army, and a taxation system, and an economic system, um, and how to set up a capital city, and a system of justice, of courts, and police, and, and, and civil law, and criminal law, and, and education, and everything that a, that a country is going to need. And we saw how a society that completely functioned according to the laws of the Torah would really be Mamlechet Kohanim Egoi Kadosh. And then we looked at the fact that Eretz Yisrael, which is the land in which this is supposed to happen, is in fact located literally at the center of the earth. And we understood that the purpose of Am Yisrael is to lead uh, a life, to, set up, to, to build a national life, not just individuals, but to build a life of a nation completely completely based on the laws of the Torah, and that a nation that lived that way in the middle of the world would undoubtedly become, as Yahu later said, a light to the nations, or Goyim. And the people would ultimately come to emulate it. And this is meant to lead to the vision of Yishayahu, that uh, the vision of Yerushalayim being the center of the world, and all the nations of the world coming to Yerushalayim and saying, all the nations of the world wanting to go up, not only to the mountain of God, but to the mountain of the God of Yaakov, meaning that the nations of the world recognize the leadership of the Jewish people as well, and they will say, they want to learn the Torah, they want to follow the Torah, which doesn't necessarily mean to observe the 613 mitzvot, but it does mean to observe the mitzvot b'nenoach and to live a life based on the principles of the Torah. And that's supposed to lead to the ultimate vision, ki mitzion Torah, utvar Hashem Yerushalayim, the teachings of God goes out to the entire world, not just to Am Yisrael and Yerushalayim, and this leads to the chitutu cherbatam li'itim, b'chanit oteim l'maz nerot, beating their swords into plowshares, lo yisagoyel goicherev, v'lo yomitu od milchama, that ultimate messianic vision of a world uh, that lives together in peace and harmony um, under the rule of the one true God. We also saw that uh, the Torah takes into account the very, very real possibility that Am Yisrael may not uh, fulfill its mission and may not, or at least may not completely fulfill its mission, may not observe the Torah properly. And now that Hashem has, so to speak, promised not only Noah, but also Avraham, that their descendants are going to ultimately lead the world and bring it to, to its fruition, there needs to be a mechanism to essentially compel Am Yisrael to, to correct its ways. And we looked at the Tolchachot, both in uh, Vayikra and in Dvarim, to see that the Torah gives us, a, a basically lays out for us the blueprint of Jewish history and all the strange phenomena that we observed in the outset from the actual record of history and the actual contemporary reality and all the strange things about life 
and about the Jewish people and about Jewish history and, and about the strange things that we read in the newspaper and the questions that we ask ourselves about why the world relates to us the way they do, it turns out that this is exactly what the Torah said was going to happen. And now, not only do we see that the Torah predicted this, which again, to me, makes it so easy to believe in the divine truth of the Torah when I see that, but the Torah also explained to us why it has to be that way. And then we looked at the ultimate goal of history, uh, the, uh, the days of the Mashiach, and we looked at various different interpretations of the Mount of Mashiach leading up to the Rambam, and particularly the Rambam that we just read. Where does this all leave us today? Let's go back to that Rambam. When the Rambam wrote those words 800 years ago, the world looked very different than it does today. And I'm going to now make a statement that I've made in many, many times in public, and a lot of people have told me that they find this statement to be very strange, uh, even um, absurd, but I stand by the statement. Looking at the world today at the beginning of the 21st century, and if I look at particularly the last 100 years, and I, and I make that statement with the full knowledge that the last 100 years have been the bloodiest years in human history, with two world wars, and a holocaust, and the development of nuclear weapons, and uh, everything else that we know about the world today. In spite of all that, I make the claim that the world we live in today has never been closer, the world has never been closer to redemption, and that the vision of Yishayahu has never been closer than it is in contemporary times. And I make that startling statement by simply taking a step back and looking at all of human history. You know, when Avram Avinu was chosen, when, when those first words, Lech Lecha, were spoken, Avram was one man who stood against the entire world. One man who believed in God when everyone else was a pagan. And that was true at later points in history too. When Am Yisrael left Mitzrayim, they had a message that nobody else in the world followed. And it was true even later on in the times of the first Beit HaMikdash and later on in the times of the second Beit HaMikdash and the times of the Greeks and the Romans. And then as the Rambam said, those two individuals, Yeshua HaNotzri V'zeh HaYishma'eli Harav, Jesus of Nazareth and later on the Arab Muhammad who both uh, took these messages and with distortions and with and with confusion, but brought these messages to wide, vast uh, elements, aspects of humanity. And today, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the people on earth believe in the God of Abraham. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. I believe there's, there's several billion Christians and over a billion Muslims in the world. At least half of the world believes in the God of Abraham, what started as one man who set out to transform the world were certainly not yet at the point of the fulfillment of that vision. But look how, how close the world has come, at least compared to where it started. No longer there still is real pagan idolatry in the world, but it's a minority. Most of the world today, and even those who declare themselves to be atheists or or claim to not believe in any God at all, except many other elements of the Torah's teaching. Concepts that today, at least in many parts of the world, are considered axiomatic, were once concepts that began in the Torah, and and uh, and, and everyone else thought they were crazy. Ideas like human rights. The idea that a human being 
you can't just kill another person, and you can't just steal another person's property. That was a chidush when the Torah said, Lo tignov, lo tirtzach. These were things that, once upon a time, the rest of the world didn't accept. And today, although the world very often doesn't follow these things, these things are accepted. Even great tyrants and terrible ruthless dictators who kill people and do terrible things often feel the need to at least pay lip service and to claim, perhaps in a terrible distortion, that they're doing this in the name of God and not just because they feel like it. That itself, in my mind, again, far from a a fulfillment of the prophecies, uh, but definitely a step in their direction. Even an institution like the United Nations, we Jews, uh, and we Israelis especially, tend to not view the United Nations uh, in very favorable light. And there's good reason for that. After all, the United Nations, other than one dramatic decision on the 29th of November, 1947, other than that, the United Nations seems to very often uh, spend most of its time or much of its time figuring out how to try to damage the Jewish people. Um, and so we typically don't view the United Nations in very positive, in a very positive light. But if we step out of our own personal experience for a minute and we just look at that, you know, go to New York City. And see that there's a building there. A building. And in that building there's a large chamber in which sits a representative of every nation on earth. Think about that for a moment. Every nation on earth sends a person to sit together in the same room, not to fight but to talk. To talk, in theory at least, even if not in practice, but at least hypothetically what they're doing there is they're talking about making the world a better place for everybody and bringing about a time of peace. Now, if I think of Yeshayahu's vision of the whole world coming to Yerushalayim in order to learn the Torah and to uh, bring about the world of a, being a better place, that room where they're sitting is in New York or, or I think there's also one in Geneva. It's not in Yerushalayim. And certainly they don't recognize uh the, the role that I'm Israel is supposed to play. But still, if you compare that to a world in which people readily slaughtered one another, and even if people continue to slaughter one another, at least they're talking about the idea of a world of peace. And if I talk about comparing the existence of the United Nations to the vision of Yeshayahu, I would just like to point out that if you walk outside that building in New York, the Dag Hammarskjöld Plaza, on the wall right outside the United Nations building, is inscribed nothing other than that pasuk in Yeshayahu. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword unto nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, I'm not saying we're fulfilling that mission. I'm saying the world is is there. And therefore, what's left to be done is up to us. The Torah has told us in advance the story of Jewish history. And we talked about how you can read the... Many passages in the Torah, particularly the Tochachot in Vayikra and in Dvarim, as being, today you can read most of them like a history book. The whole story that the Torah said almost has happened. Not all of it, but so much of it. We're so close to the end of the story. Most of the chapters that were originally written in advance in the Torah are now written in the history books. The last chapter of the story is also written. It's there in Yeshayahu. All that's left to be written is the chapter that takes us from where we are in history now to that point. And that chapter, my friends, is what you and I have to write. And the Torah tells us exactly how to do it. We, as individuals, 
as communities and ultimately as a nation, have to follow the laws of the Torah. If we do so, and the more we strive, each one of us as an individual, and it starts when you and I get out of bed in the morning and say Kriyat Shema, or put on Tefillin, and say Shacharit, or whatever it is that we do, say Brachot, and it continues as we go about our day, and we're honest in our business transactions, and we're kind to others, certainly to others of our own our own flesh and blood, the Jewish people, perhaps also to others we come into contact with. And it continues here in Medinat Yisrael as we try to build a society that's not only more religious and more holy, but also more ethical and more kind and more just. All of those things together. And step by step by step, as we make ourselves closer to the vision of the Mamlechet Kohanim, the Goy Kadosh, we speed the day when the rest of the world will finally recognize the truth, stop opposing us, and instead embrace our mission more fully than they already do. And again, as the Rambam says, they're already so close. It's just a matter of correcting a few last mistakes. That's the challenge of our generation. That's the challenge of you and I, Yehirat Son, that we take this understanding and now we can go back and look at the rest of the Torah, strengthen our own personal observance of the Torah, in, encourage others to do so, strengthen our communities. Um, those who are in Chutzlarts, to come as quickly as possible here to Eretz Yisrael where it's supposed to happen to continue the process of Kibbutz Galuyot and to continue the process of building a state which will move from the Atchalta de Geula, from the beginnings of the redemption towards the full redemption, Bimhera V'yamenu. Thank you very much. I hope you found these podcasts to be helpful. And on a personal note, I'd be very happy to hear from anybody who has anything to add, comments, um, or how to continue the conversation further. Shalom.